We are continuing our series through the book of Psalms. And if you remember that the uh, theme of our series is songs for our heart. And that's what the Psalms book really is. It, it's songs for our heart. And so as we jump into Psalms 13, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father God, we, we come before you and Lord, we open up your word. And Lord, it, it's a map for our heart. It's the healing salve that we need for our lives, our soul, our spirit. It's the very food and sustenance that we need that, that would give us the strength of spirit to live for you. As we go to this psalm, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in, in each one of us and in, into the depths of our heart, Father God, the, the parts of our heart that we usually don't let anyone else see. And Father, we pray that you would speak your truth to that in a mighty way, that you would give us new strength as we seek to honor and glorify you and, and, and live for you, Father. We turn this time over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The message for tonight is hope in darkness. And we're going to be looking at Psalms 13. It's not one of the longer Psalms. It's only six verses. And with it being six verses and even verses, it divides up into three wonderful stanzas. Now, we have tough times in our walk with God, don't we? And if we've spent any time, if we've been a Christian for a little bit of time, and we kind of know the books of the Bible, we know that when you're suffering and, and, and you're dealing with hard times, you go to the book of Psalms to find comfort, relief, or at least so you can be like, yeah, I feel just like that guy. I don't know why, but it, it tends to bring us a little bit of comfort to know that somebody else has gone through what we're going through. We don't feel strange. We're not the only ones we're not the worst person in the world because we feel this way. And the Psalms, as we step through them, what we're learning is they're songs and poems written from the heart for the heart. And they'll address a myriad of human emotions and experiences in different circumstances of life. And so we instinctively turn to the Psalms and we look for one that will minister to us. And I like to uh, compare that to going to Walgreens when... All you have is a headache and you get NyQuil. It treats a whole bunch of other symptoms, but yeah, it'll get rid of your headache too. Call it over medication or uh, just taking a generic thing and trying to attack something that's more specific. There's times, however, when our souls need something a little bit more targeted. It's kind of like going to the doctor and you come with a specific set of symptoms and you get a specific prescription that meets those needs only. I know it's been a long time since we've had medicines that actually do that. They always come with a myriad of uh, side effects and whatnot, but the doctor usually tries to laser focus that treatment and Psalms can do that laser treatment as well. If you know your book of Psalms, you know that there's different types of Psalms. You feel like praising, you go to Psalms 113 to 118 or Psalms 145 to 150. If you want something instructive, you can turn to Psalm 1. But there's also Psalms of lament. And this Psalm that we're going to look at tonight is a song of lament, and it expresses thoughts and feelings. We have um, 
the lament psalms that comfort us, they offer us perspective. They tell us that our struggle is not unusual, that we aren't unspiritual because we're experiencing what we're going through. We find the spiritual relief generally when we go to a lament psalm. It's a laser focus that lament psalm because there's songs of lament that focus on different problems. You have Psalm 38. That's good for experience when you're experiencing the consequences of willful sin. You have Psalm 55 is a good psalm if you've ever been betrayed by someone else. Psalm 70 is a good place to turn when people are just out to get you. But tonight we're turning to Psalm 13. And something to point out is that there's no clear details about the historical background for this psalm. We don't know what situation David was necessarily in. But if we look at the italics of the heading, which if we remember it, that's inspired. The headings for the psalms are inspired, not the big bold ones, but the the italic ones. It says David wrote this psalm and it's intended for the chief choir director. I believe that David wrote this psalm with the intent that it's a public psalm. It would be sung in the tabernacle. It would be sung at temple worship. While we cannot identify the problem David was experiencing that motivated him to write it, we have clues to what was going on. Now, David was very clearly experiencing a a sort of trial in his life in which he had a problem that was going on, but it had no end in sight. And I believe it's a blessing for us that no details are given because we can't say, oh, well, that doesn't apply to my situation. Or, oh, that, that wouldn't work here because David was focused on something that happened only back then. It, it's not for today. And so we can, without the specific details of it, we can apply this psalm whenever we experience any kind of problem that continues on with no end in sight. Psalm 13 is the psalm for when our problems don't just go away. God can seem distant because the problem prolongs. I'm not sure how common this is because most leaders in churches, if you, if you go and you ask them and you say, have you ever felt dry or have you ever felt like God's presence wasn't there? all the super spiritual guys will say, no, never. I've never had that problem. You are so much worse than I am. And I am always in close connection with God. Well, I'm going to tell you, standing up here, I'm I'm no different. I have times where I feel dry in my walk with God. There is a book that's written about that. It's called Streams in the Desert. And it's a great devotional book for that time. But what, what it is, is there's times where God seems to show up right away, right? We have an issue, we turn to God and boom, he, he's right there and we're like, wow, God, thanks. But there's times in our life where something's going on and we pray and we pray and we pray and we feel like we're talking to ourselves because no one's answering. We think that God is either ignoring us or he's just being distant. And I'm going to tell you, if you've you've ever felt that way, if you feel that way now, I've felt that way before. Almost everyone who's walked with God has had a time where they've felt that way. The question begins to come, how long will this last? How long until you talk to me again, God? How long until my problem's taken care of? How long? Will it be forever? 
Is this the way I'm going to be for the rest of my life? I don't know what issues that we're going through, but I know what issues I've gone through. How long will I be unemployed, Lord? How long am I going to struggle medically or financially? How long until I find somebody who I can marry or who wants to marry me? How long will I be single, God? How long until my family talks to me again? How long until whatever is going on gets back to normal? How long will I wait for justice? See, these questions can go on and on because each of us perhaps has a long-term problem that we're struggling through, that we're dealing with, that we're walking in right now. And Psalm 13 tells that this struggle that we're going through doesn't need for us to ignore it or bottle it up. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to put on the happy face and say, everything's great and God answers all my prayer. And, and, and the whole time being like, I don't know where God is, but I'm not going to tell anybody else that. I don't want anybody else to know that I'm having spiritual issues. This psalm teaches us when long-term issues are troubling us, there's only one place we can go, and that is to God's throne in prayer. Even if we feel like he's not answering. And we're going to see how that works. Verse 1, it says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trust in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance, and I will sing to the Lord because he's treated me generously. I believe this psalm lays out a, a, a pathway for us, a, a map, if you will, of how to navigate when you feel like you have been abandoned. And the num number one thing that we can do is express our despair. Don't try to hide your despair. Don't try to pretend it's not there. We can go and we can admit, I'm in despair. Look at David in the first two verses. He says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? David's no different than us, right? In the midst of ongoing trouble, David asks the same questions that we do. How long? When, Lord? When? He asked that question four times. And in Hebrew... Repetition indicates that the nature of the struggle is ongoing without end in sight. The problems are not usually the biggest problem. What it is is when it continues on for so long, it wears on us. We get worn out. We get tired of it. We, we can't deal with it anymore. Everything seems easy at the beginning when you first start it. You're like, all right, I'm going to get through this. But what happens when that steam runs out? How long, Lord? Until when? 
And then look at the next question. Will you forget me forever? David says, will this be forever? Is there an end? I don't know about you guys. I've had issues where I look at it and I'm like, I see no end in sight. This is going to go on for, this is my life now. This is just what it'll be. And I can tell you, it seemed like it would never end. It really only lasted a small amount of time when you compare it with the grand scheme of time. David, in his ongoing trouble, he feels forgotten by the Lord, though. He even feels like God's ignoring him or, or ignoring at least his plight. And I'm going to tell you this. If you have not asked these questions yet to God, you will. You just haven't been walking in your walk with the Lord long enough for this to come up yet. Nobody underlines that stuff in their Bible, though. We all, we all want to believe that, you know, God, his desire is to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. And only one of those is true. He wants to make us wise. And sometimes he takes us through troubles and trials to get us there. If you have asked this question before, you know the feeling that the psalmist is trying to express. That feeling of desperation in the heart. That, that feeling that I need an answer. I, I, I'm going to... Are you just going to leave me to die, Lord? And that's the truth of the thing, right? We can go before God in prayer and we pray and we're like, I put it at God's feet. And then there's a passage of time between the prayer for help and the deliverance of the help provided. And that passage of time, if we had our way, would we ever allow that passage of time? If we had our way, God would be like right on it. We wouldn't have to wait. How long? That's the critical question. The truth of it is, it's oftentimes it's not the weight of problems that overwhelm us. It's the weight of problems. We could endure most anything if only we knew when it would end. In the 1950s, there was a, a, science, a professor at John Hopkins. His name was Kurt Richter. He did a famous drowning rat psychology experiment. And if you don't like rats, you'll love this experiment. And if you do like rats, um, I'm, I apologize ahead of time. But this experiment, though cruel, demonstrated the power of hope and resilience in overcoming difficult situations. In a series of experiments that are fairly cruel and unpalatable, but interesting in their findings... Kurt demonstrated that hope is a powerful factor in perseverance. Kurt's experiments focused on how long it would take rats to die from drowning. He conducted his experiments by taking rats and placing them in buckets filled with water and just waiting to see how long they survived. So the first group of rats he took domesticated. Twelve domesticated rats were used in his first set of experiments. The first of these rats initially swam around the surface then would dive to the bottom of the bucket and explored what was there for a while. Lasted a total of two minutes before it drowned. Two other the domesticated rats did roughly the same thing and survived for roughly the same period of time. The other nine domesticated rats, though, did something completely different, and after an initial exploration, predominantly spent their time at the surface, and they just kept swimming. They survived for literally days 
before eventually succumbing to exhaustion and drowning. Then he took another group of rats, wild rats. The second set of experiments that he undertook had 34 wild rats. Now, wild rats, they're excellent swimmers. I did not know this. Now I know, do not go into the water to get away from rats. They won't happen. (laughs) They're excellent swimmers, and the savage and aggressive ones had only recently been caught. And so Kurt expected them to fight hard for their survival, right? You grow up on the streets, you, you fight hard, you know how to survive. Surprisingly, though, this was not the case at all. Despite their ferocity, fitness, and swimming ability, not one of the 34 wild rats survived more than a few minutes. In his own words, he said, the situation of these rats scarcely seems one demanding fight or flight. It's rather one of hopelessness. The rats are in a situation against which they have no defense. They seem to literally give up. Leads us back to David's question. Will you forget me forever? That feeling of hopelessness. How long will you hide your face from me? There's a great deal of pain and despair from the thought or the idea that God has left us, forgotten us, or is ignoring us. But we have to remember that God will never forget us. In Isaiah 49, 14, the prophet writes, Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. But can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Look, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now on this side of the cross, we know that literally Christ inscribed us on the palms of his hands. But how long will I store up anxious concerns within me? He says there's agony in my mind every day. How many of us struggle with anxiety and worry? And I'm not going to say that, you know, just read this psalm and all your anxiety will go away, but understand that anxiety is a normal thing. But the way that it comes up is when we start thinking that we have to handle our own problems as opposed to setting them before God. That's the first part of not necessarily being free from anxiety, but free from the power of anxiety over us. God did not forget David. He wasn't hiding his face from David. David felt like it, though. When we have strong feelings, those feelings attempt to create their own reality for us. David felt like God had forgotten him and was hiding from him. In in the sense of how he felt, that was true. But it's only true in feelings, not in fact. And that's the, the, thing, the thing of it. Really? I got him backwards. I did. Totally got him backwards. Just because we feel something is true does not mean that that thing is factually true. We have to be able to um, separate fact from feeling. Or as I've heard it said in 
pop media, facts don't care about your feelings. When it comes to our feelings, some would say we have to ignore our feelings and that feelings have nothing to do with our walk with the Lord. However, I believe that this is a wrong extreme because God gave us our feelings. They're part of our being made in his image. We are able to express a lot of the same emotions and stuff that God does. Anger, love, sorrow, on top of many other things. The other extreme is, that, however, that we are ruled by our feelings. We cannot trust the reality that our feelings create. Our feelings have been affected by the fall. And because of this, we cannot live by our feelings. And so what David was doing was he was taking counsel from anxious concerns and creating agony in his own mind every day. He was looking to himself. He's like, well, if you're not going to answer me, God, here, I'll figure it all out for you. We cannot look to our own self in discouragement or despair, but rather we have to look to the Lord. Because here's the thing. You can think on the problems, but that brings anxiety and worry, which only provide the mind with agony. But if I pray about my problems, I get a release and a peace. David says, how long will my enemy dominate me? When the Lord's help seems far, and the problem continues on, it sometimes feels like our enemies or our problems get the upper hand. We feel like they're going to overcome us. They're, they're going to take over us. They're going to triumph on us. In another course, it could be the enemy of depression. It could be the enemy of a downcast, trodden soul that dominates us as we endure and we carry on under the crushing weight of our own circumstances and situations. When you feel like David and your trials seem to last forever, you should express your duress and deep despair to God. Don't hold it in and definitely don't complain to others. And I don't say that because nobody else cares about what you're going, but what happens is we throw these feelings on someone else and they can't handle them. And my wife's not in here, so I can say this freely and whatnot without any repercussions ever again until she listens to the live stream. But we have a lot of conflict when we use each other as a sounding board for our feelings that we haven't quite yet shared with God yet. And it creates a lot of conflict. Because when I hear problems on her side that she hasn't given to God yet, I'm like, oh, all you need to do is this. You know, typical fixer. Or on the other side, I'm sharing stuff and, and she's hearing it. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You're not, like, I don't need you to take sides on this. I'm just expressing where I'm at. And so we throw these things that nobody else is ready to handle yet. But God can always handle it. He's always ready for it. You know he's there. Even if he doesn't feel like he's there, you know he's there. You're, what you're upset about and what you're feeling is you're like, why isn't he responding? That's what we're upset about. That's what we're feeling the anxiety over. Why isn't he? I know he's there. It's like when you go to your friend's house, right? And the car's in the driveway, the lights are on. You hear them inside. You're knocking on the door. Everything gets quiet and they never open the door. You're like, I know you're in there. That never happens to you guys? <laughs> Just me? It's because it's the pastor. The pastor's here. Turn it down. 
Or when you call someone and you know they're, they're home or they're available, they were just texting with you, right? I started off in the whole texting generation um, when it, text messages first came out. Remember when they used to cost a quarter per message? People would text me and I'd be like, what are you doing? Call me. So I would turn around and call them. I said, I'm not going to text anybody back. I'm going to call them. I eventually bought into the whole texting thing. Now I don't call anybody and I text. But when you know somebody's answering, you know they're there and you call them and they don't answer and you're like, what's going on here? You know they're there. You just don't know why they're not answering. It's the same thing with God. You know he's there. You can't feel abandoned by something that you don't believe is there. He's just not responding the way we want. So speaking to God is being honest and it demonstrates your faith in God, that he is there even if you're hurting and you don't know why he's not responding. You're speaking to him and it's better than complaining to your spouse, let me tell you. It's better than complaining to a friend or even venting your frustrations to the world via social media. I wish when you became a Christian, you had your social media taken away when you're having a bad day. Because there has been many times where people vent Christian things on social media and then the world goes, see, that stuff's worthless. And we become a bad witness. So we express our despair to God. We can be honest with it. And then the next thing, seek the Lord. You're like, but isn't that the whole thing? He was upset because the Lord's not answering him. Yes, but still seek the Lord. Still seek the Lord. Look at verses three and four. David says, consider me and answer, Lord, my God, restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. As we turn to the Lord in our never ending trials, we can do more than just say and express the depths of our despair. David, in this, in, in this psalm, we see him. He continues to ask for God's intervention. He continues to ask for God to supply aid. Never once does he stop going to God. He didn't stop seeking and speaking to the Lord just because he wasn't perceiving his presence. He calls out to the Lord. He says, consider me an answer, Lord, my God. And in your Bible, Lord is probably all caps. Because again, it is the name of God. I am that I am, or the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And then he says, Lord, my God, it intensifies the appeal that it is to God Almighty. And when he says, my God, it's personalizing it. Like David when the Lord appears to be absent from us, that's not the time to desert our faith. That's when we need to double down in our devotion to the Lord because he is our God. David never considered going to another source. Well, God's not answering me. That's it. I'm going to go over here to Bethel. I'm going to make a nice little golden calf and I'm going to just worship something else. He never considered it. Even when he felt forgotten or ignored, he never considered it. He knew his hope only remained in the Lord. He says, consider me. Pay attention, answer, hear me, Lord. 
take note of me and act in response to my request for help. In your walk with God and in your prayers with God, I'm going to share a secret, but I'm not going to be able to tell you why, because I'm not God. And I'm also going to tell you, it's not really a secret. You can get it by reading the Bible. God sometimes waits to answer our prayer because he wants to know how desperate our prayer is. There's times where he waits until our prayers are desperate before he hears, and that might cause us to go and wonder why. A lot of our prayers go out and they have no effectiveness in them because there's no desperation in it. There's no real desire behind it. We pray, and we pray in such a way where we actually think that we can get God to care more about it than we actually do. Usually these go for prayers that concern other people, other things, other stuff going on where we're like, well, Lord, I know this is important. doesn't really matter to me, but it should matter to you, God, so you go and handle it. Desperate prayer has a power in it, not because it in itself it persuades the reluctant God, but rather that it demonstrates that our heart cares passionately about the things that God cares about, quoting David Guzik. So what Jesus was saying in John fifteen seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it'll be done for you. That's what it meant when Jesus said, anything you ask in my name, it'll be done for you. We think that asking in Jesus' name just means as long as you end your prayer with in Jesus' name. That's kind of like the magic abracadabra or uh, what, what was the other one? Uh, I forget, alakazam, that's it. But in Jesus' name is not a magic word. What it is saying is, God, here's my prayer. And if it is according to Jesus' name, you can answer it. If it's not, I give you permission to throw it out. You didn't know that you were doing that, huh? But that's what's going on. It has to be according to his name. And in accordance with his name means according to his character. Whatever Jesus would care about, whatever Jesus would pray for, whatever Jesus wanted done, whatever he told us that we need to be doing in his name, that's what it was. You can't just say, well, I need a new boat in Jesus' name and like that Jesus was all for it. Now, I'm not saying he won't give you those desires, but you got to seek first the kingdom of God. Then David says, restore brightness to my eyes. And this isn't just because David had blue eyes and then they turned brown as he got older or anything. He's not saying give more color in my eyes. He's saying, uh, he's asking for spiritual insight. He says, give me light, give me hope. When you're in a time where the trouble continues on and on and on and you feel abandoned by God, you feel like God is ignoring you, that feels like a time of darkness, right? He's saying, restore brightness to my eyes. Let me see in this darkness. Lord, give me spiritual insight to see this situation. Maybe that I could see it from your eyes and not my own. David knew his feelings were creating a a false reality. God hadn't abandoned him. God wasn't ignoring him, but that's how it felt and that's what it looked like. And so he says, this is what it looks like to me, God. Give me new eyes so I can see how it really is. 
no matter what problem we're facing, we need to cry out with all of our heart for God to restore the brightness in our eyes when we've lost hope. When we start to feel like the walls are closing in and that this is just it. I'm just going to resign my life. I'm reminded of Paul when he prayed. He said that there's a thorn in my spine. And he said, I prayed three times for God to take it away. But God, his answer was what? My grace is sufficient. In your weakness, I am made strong. And we start to understand the heart of God. If he solves all of our problems for us, when would we ever go to him? Maybe God wants us to lean on him a little bit harder for a longer period of time. Do you know that your father in heaven desires to know and to love you and that you would desire to know and love him? If the only time you go and talk to him when you have problems, your problems may stick around a lot longer than they normally would. Not always, but just saying. Paul also understood the need for being enlightened. In Ephesians 1.17, he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. It's by this restoring of the brightness of our eyes that we begin to see through the darkness to the hope that has been promised and given to us in Christ Jesus. David says, otherwise, if I do not have the brightness restored to my eyes, then I will sleep in death. A little dramatic. But that was where he was at in despair. He said, if I can't see this for that, then I might as well be dead. He says, my enemies were going to claim victory and they will rejoice because I am shaken. Why? Because he's shaken in his understanding of where God is at. Hebrews also refers to dim eyes as a sign of vanishing life. David, in a sense, is saying, my eyes are dim and I feel like the life is fleeting from me. Restore the brightness to my eyes. Restore the life to me. Bring me back from the brink of death unto life again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Sometimes the Lord will take us in our problem until we get to the end of ourself so that we realize we cannot trust in anything else but in him even if we feel like we're to the point of death, God will do whatever is necessary to help remove anything that holds our heart over and above him. And perhaps those times, those trials, those things that we face for the long term is God helping us to remove every last little finger of something that would keep or turn our attention from him. 
Sometimes God seems distant, allows us to go to the brink of ourselves, that we would trust him more. Now, whatever the intensity, all trials have the express purpose of perfecting us in our faith in the Lord. And that's why James wrote in his epistle, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He says, consider it the greatest thing ever. Why? Because trials have that perfecting work in our life, making us perfect and complete in everything that we would ever need. And I think that Paul had this in in mind when you get to the brink of death. Ask the Lord to give you that light. It says for in Ephesians 5.14, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The light of Christ brings us back from the from the brink of death, the light of Christ gives us the understanding that we need. Continue to seek the Lord. Continue to chase after him. Your, your trial, your, your, your troubles, that's not the time. Most people, when they hit a hard time, if their faith is like what Jesus described with the seed and the, and, and the sower and how the seed fell on the stony ground and it grew up real fast and there was a plant, right? What happens? The sun came out and the heat was so intense. I don't know. That sounds like a picture of a fiery trial to me. If you're just a plant and all you can do is stand there and be scorched by the sun. But it says because it had no depth to the roots, it died. That's what happens when our faith has no ground in its substance. When the troubles come, we say, that's it. I'm done with you, God. We quickly abandon that faith that we once so easily received. God wants us to have deep roots. The only way you get that is by in the midst of it, you continue to say, I will trust God no matter what. You have to decide to trust him though. That's a choice we have to make. It won't come automatically and it won't come easy. But look at what David said in the last two verses. He said, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he's treated me generously. He says, I've trusted in your faithful love. I believed in it. I put my trust in your faithful, your loyal, your unfailing, your covenantal love. You see, David verbalized all of his doubts and all of his feelings on the situation. And now David focuses on his trust being in the Lord. The word but in there is like a sudden U-turn in Hebrew. He's like, everything is horrible. Everything's terrible. I can't see nothing. And then he's all, but I'm going to trust in you, Lord. And then look at what he says. He says, my heart will rejoice in your deliverance. What's interesting about this statement is that nothing at this time has changed in David's situation. The problem is still there. His problem is ongoing. His enemies are still watching. Yet David says, my heart will rejoice in your deliverance. He hasn't even heard from God at this point. But he trusted that deliverance was coming. Why? Because he knew that God's love was faithful. 
when we know that God's love is faithful, we will trust it to the ends of everything. David wasn't delivered. He didn't even get a timeline of when it would happen. But he trusted that the deliverance was coming and and he set his heart to rejoice in it. So trustworthy is the faithful love of the Lord. You can set your heart to it. Even in a situation that could still not be seen for having changed at all. When we put our trust in the faithful love of the Lord, we too can lead our hearts to rejoice in deliverance even before we're delivered. Why? Because the Lord is trustworthy. The other thing is nothing in the circumstance changed. You know what changed? David's heart. David's heart changed. Instead of looking to his circumstance for confidence in God, and confidence in God's deliverance, and confidence in God's presence, and confidence in God's love, David found confidence and hope in the character of God. And here's why that's so important. Because if you put your trust and hope of God in your circumstances, well, your circumstances always change. That's where you get on shaken ground when your trust in God is based upon how things are going. But you know something cool? God's character never changes. So when you put your faith upon his character, now you're in something that's stable, that's solid, that never changes. God's promises is always greater than our problems. No matter how long our problems last. So instead of his feelings directing his actions, David now uses his actions to direct his feelings. Did you know that if, if you're feeling one way and you want to change the way you feel, you have to change what you're at, how you're acting towards that. David says, I will sing to the Lord because he's treated me so generously. He doesn't say, I will sing when I feel better. I will sing when life is easier. God, when this problem is over, then I'll sing to you. No, David says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to sing even while the whole world is falling apart around me. And I want you to know that you can sing the praises of the Lord and you can worship in the midst of the worst storms and the worst trials in your life. One of my favorite songs, one of my favorite groups is Casting Crowns. One of my favorite songs by them is called Praise You in This Storm. Because we can praise him in the storm. Singing not only expresses our joy, it increases it. Spurgeon said, there's not half enough singing in the world. I remember a servant who used to sing while she was at the wash tub. Her mistress said to her, why Jane, how is it that you are always singing? She said, it keeps the bad thoughts away. David had moved from despair and depression about his situation to singing with joy. God in the scripture teaches us that he still loves us and he will be faithful to us regardless of our feelings. And because David's eyes were brightened once again, he could see God's goodness and have a different perspective. And that's, what's in, that, that's the importance. This psalm like much of our God-sent testings, begins with a sigh and a cry, but ends with joy and praise. In six verses, 
This is one of the shorter Psalms. Six verses, David goes from despair to rejoicing. Why? Simple answer is because he prayed. It didn't solve his problem, but it gave him somewhere to take his problem. The longer version is that he prayed and God met with him. Not to change his circumstance, but to change his eyes and his perspective. To allow him to see hope in the darkness. Now I want to give you the rest of the story. That last set of, that last set of experiments that we are going to focus on and are concerned with impact comes from introducing hope. When you introduce hope, it has impact on the perseverance of the rats in the buckets. In these experiments, Kurt's hypothesis was roughly that introducing hope to rats would increase their survival times. To test his hypothesis, Kurt selected a new cohort of rats who were all similar to each other. He introduced them again to buckets and observed them as they progressed towards drowning. This time, however, he noted the moment at which they gave up. Then, just before they died, he rescued them, saved them. He held them for a little while, helped them to recover. Then he placed them back into the buckets and started the experiments all over again. And he discovered that his hypothesis was right. When the rats were placed back into the water, they swam and they swam and they swam and they swam for much longer than they had ever at the first time they were placed in the buckets. They swam for over 60 hours. The only thing that has changed was that they had been saved before. So they had hope. When you place your hope in God, you have the strength to endure and to persevere. You can swim and swim and swim. As the feeling of abandonment wore on, David resorted to his own counsel. He went to his own inner thoughts. The commentator of McGinnis says the presence of continued suffering and the lack of divine help caused David to look inside his own soul for much needed relief. You know what happened when he did this? Nothing. All he found was sorrow. He's unable to provide himself any relief. The only thing that came from within inside himself was more grief. The same is true for us. We will not provide ourselves with any relief. All we're going to do is bring up more grief. The test of your faith is not when God's presence is real. When you see that God is at work in your life. The real test of your faith is when God seems distant. Do you seek him then? Because the promise of the Lord is this. Those who diligently seek me will find me. That's the promise of the Lord. And prayer changes things, beginning with our eyes and our hearts. Father God, we come before you tonight, Lord. Lord, as we consider this, we know that we live in a time that is dark, Father God. As we look out, we, we, we can just see that there's darkness all around. And Father, sometimes as we're going through in this darkness, we can feel hopeless, hopeless. 
Lord, I pray that the light of the hope that is in Christ Jesus, who died on the cross for the sins of this world, so that, the, so that men can find forgiveness for their sins and stand before God holy and justified. Lord, I pray that that, that light of hope would beckon to those who feel trapped by the darkness, Lord, that that light would pierce through the darkness. As it says in your words, that light entered into this world and light overtook the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Lord, I pray for those that are trapped in darkness that they would find the light of Christ and and find that salvation. And Lord, for those of us who know the salvation of Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our eyes, that you would restore the brightness to our eyes, Father God, that that hope that we have in Christ would not dim, that it would not grow faint, Father God, but Lord, that it would grow brighter and brighter because we're getting closer to it. Each day we step closer to the Lord Christ coming back and revealing his glory. Father, knowing that we've been saved from our sins, knowing that we have the promise of deliverance, I pray, Father, that having that knowledge and trusting in your character, Lord, that we would find the strength to persevere, to continue in the darkness, not feeling abandoned, but continuing to actively and persistently seeking you, Father. Because you're our only hope. That hope is only found in Christ. And Father, we do thank you that we have you, that we can go to. Even if we feel like you're distant, Father, we, we thank you that the promises that you're not help us to remember that we can call on you, that we are not alone. And may that hope that we have in you, Father, help us to continue swimming. In Jesus' name, amen.